This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome back to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences and cultural experiences and how they affect their life and work. And this episode is A Brush With, Charles Gaines. Charles is one of the leading figures in American conceptual art. Born in Charleston in South Carolina, he grew up in Newark in New Jersey. He now lives in Los Angeles, where for many years he's been an influential teacher at the CalArts School of Arts. CalArts is particularly known for its links to generations of conceptual artists, and especially the late John Baldessari. But Charles also has links to the East Coast conceptualists, including his late friend Sol LeWitt. Charles' contribution to this conceptual history is diverse in its form and content, but there's one common denominator, and that's his use of systems. His breakthrough work was in 1973 in a series called Regressions, and in that series, on a hand-drawn grid, he wrote numbers according to specific rules, which generated a form, and that would then morph from one drawing to the next, so each drawing was based on the last one. Quickly, he began using photographs as a basis for these grid works as they became known. The series Walnut Tree Orchard from 1975 began his works based on trees, which he continues today. From deadpan, straight walnut tree photographs, he first made a line drawing of the tree and then plotted each tree using the numbered squares. They were then presented in a triptych with the photograph on the left, the line drawing from that photograph in the middle, and then the systemised number drawing on the right. Eventually there were 26 trees, and as the series grew, the number drawings accumulated one on top of the other, so that the orchard of the title was essentially represented in that third image in the triptych. In the mid-1980s, Charles began bringing colour into these series and using plexiglass. So each tree in the series would have a nominated colour and again that would be chosen according to a system and then the numbered coloured grids would accumulate on the surface of the plexiglass over the photographs of the trees behind them. Now one of the consistent criticisms of conceptual art is that it produces rather dry and unappealing art, but Charles's work is consistently beautiful. He says it produces an experience of sentiment that's produced by rules. Since working with the trees, he's used a similar system to capture the movements of the choreographer Tricia Brown, and in another still ongoing series, he's applied the same system to faces. So just as the number and trees series reflected on the environmental and cultural production of trees, so the numbers and faces works reflect on a wealth of social, linguistic and political ideas. In his series called Identity Politics, for instance, Charles overlaid images of well-known thinkers, and they included people like Aristotle and Karl Marx and Bell hooks and he used that same accumulative colour system with one colour for the outline of the face and then another for the spaces between the lines. Of course the implication of these multiple layers of philosophers, writers and activists was of the evolving nature of thought, of the ever-shifting history of ideas. In a new series, Numbers and Faces, Multiracial Ethnic Combinations, Charles invited people who identify as multiracial to be photographed and using his characteristic approach of mapping their faces on top of each other cumulatively, he said that the effect was analogous to concepts of human reproduction such as heredity, genealogy, descent, lineage and genetics. 
In many ways, Charles is the perfect brush with guests because his work directly relates to many of the questions that we ask about literature and music, for instance. So in his ongoing series called Manifestos, he's created a system for translating seminal political and cultural texts by people as diverse as James Baldwin, Martin Luther King and Alain de Gouge, among others, into musical notation, which is then shown in installations with drawings and recorded music and sometimes performed live. Inevitably, we reflect on the power of those words and what happens to them when they're abstracted into music, and what effect does our subjective response to the sound, conditioned by our cultural and social position and background, bring to the work. Like the trees and faces, these musical works call into question how rules-based approaches can produce works of such emotional and even visceral power. So I began our conversation by asking Charles about his experiments with systems. He's called the regression series those first grid and number drawings an awakening. What did he mean by that? I was just referring to that, that moment when I started working in systems and uh, and that uh, happened as a result of um, first uh, uh, discovering that the received ideas about artistic practice didn't work for me. Uh, th that is that how artists make art and what is involved in that process of baking, which is in the time that, and we're talking about way back when I was in school, where uh, generally the, the entire language around art making is, was uh, framed around subjectivity and subjective expression and uh, ideas of creative expression and so forth are linked to that. And so the, the, pretty much the paradigm was that uh, the whole reason and purpose for art is to, for, is to provide the opportunity for subjective expression for its own sake, you know, taking it out of the context of, of uh, motivated expression, like, if you like the conversation that we're having is motivated by a, a, a certain purpose, you know, to make this recording for, for the purpose, to, the publication and, and, a, and a podcast. But usually if somebody expresses unmotivatedly, that person is taken to, to the loony bin. You know, they're walking down the street and then just like, yelling. Right? So that person's off, right? <laughs> but then art becomes the, an appropriate form where you can express without motivation. And so I was discovered that that idea of, uh, of making art in order to express ideas that are unmotivated uh, didn't mean much for, to me because I didn't think the ideas I was expressing were unmotivated. I think they were still connected to motivations. So as a, as a consequence of, of, of some influences that happened around the same time, I realized that I didn't have to make work from my subjective imagination. And uh, the awakening, I guess, has to do with that realization connected with the moment of finding out a way of making work that I was satisfied with, I, I felt comfortable, that, you know, so paradoxically that I felt was authentic to me. So I think that's what it was uh, framing, that, that, that particular moment. And then there's this idea, and I think this is how you described the experience of Manifesto 3, which is this musical piece based on texts, where you describe something as an experience of sentiment that's produced by rules. And, is that, and I'm just wondering, if, is that a contradiction or is that, an, is that a sort of inevitability? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's not a, it's not a contradiction. Uh, it gets a little complicated, but I came to the understanding that the idea of subjectivity or the idea of expressing from one's subjectivity 
produced the concept of subjectivity as something that really exists, but is actually, a, a, you know, so it's a fiction. Uh, so, as with all fictions, they have to be produced by a narrator. And that I decided that, you know, that fiction of subjectivity is produced by the, the history of the Enlightenment thought that, that tried to universalize the notion of a subject, you know, beyond the, the issue of how we understand ourselves to exist in the world culturally. So I thought that was, that, that was a fiction, but I didn't think emotion, feeling, passion, I didn't think those things were fictions. I just thought that the concept that a subjectivity is responsible for those feelings, I, I thought that was the fiction. And really the, the, the issue w was for me that uh, the only modification in that whole construct that had to be made was to reimpose the role of culture in this whole process of experience, that culture is essential. Uh, so it goes back to what I was saying about the notion of autonomy or the idea of a, a, a universal subjectivity that is unmotivated. It's essentially saying that we are always motivated by our particular cultural moment. And when we express as a function of that particular context, as I said, expression is motivated, it can take these forms that we understand to be subjective expression. Well, you're mentioning the manifestos. It's based upon this idea where the means of production that I entertained was based upon using a rational or logical system in order to produce what I'm calling art images or the tropes of art, you know. But having that come from a set of rules. And so there's no reason for one not to to respond to whatever is produced emotionally or even with imagination. There's no reason why that, which that shouldn't happen. Uh, and if it does, what it establishes this idea of the fictional nature of the notion of universal subjectivity and unmotivated expression. It, 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 that if it can happen, then that, it proves that, that if these experiences of... Uh, what we might call general aesthetic experiences that we have in works of art, can be produced as a result of experiencing a system and not uh, this fictional imagination of the artist, then it, it proves that that notion is fictional. move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Um, who was the first artist whose work you loved? You know, the first highly influential work that <laughs> our artist that, uh, back in high school was Rene Magritte. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, a Magritte show and, and, and I was in an art school, you know, in a, in a high school that this, the era of study was art itself, you know. So, I, I, you know, like, I didn't really think about what I was doing unless it's Kids don't, you know, <laughs> they were just doing it, right? But the Magritte was the first time I actually thought about art and thought about its relationship to me. And it seems to me that, that you know, obviously the form that the work takes is enormously different, but, but there are shared concerns in terms of representation, in terms of language that, 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 are, that are very coherently part of your work today. Yes, yes, and, and I didn't know that at the time, but thinking reflectively, I, I think you're absolutely right. 
You know, that, that his, his play on language, you know, is something that became much more important to me in my, in my own work. At least I realized that. And, and which historical artist do you turn to the most today? This is funny because I can't see a, like a, a single, a singular or, or central motivation, you know, that feeds me, that sustains me. You know, it's all sort of fragmented, this kind of kaleidoscope of experiences and objects, not so much people and things. But if I, if I try, try to just, you know, not, don't think about it very much, just like off the top of my head, say, okay, you know, what, who are those people that I think most affected my ideas? So, so I came up with a list. This is Alma Thomas, Velasquez, Marcel Duchamp, and Anthony Artaud. <laughs> That's quite a range of thought and ideas there. Yeah, which I hope is explained when I say that, you know, if for some reason my influences come to me in terms of a, the form of a kaleidoscope of, of experiences rather than through a single person or even a, a movement or anything like that. Yeah. I was pleased to hear you talk about Alma Thomas because she's an artist who I find so fascinating because in a way her language remains very consistent, but the way she moves between something like Blossom on the one hand and then those kind of sci-fi kind of paintings shows such a breadth of mind, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's uh, what I discovered. And, and I, I have to say that I, I discovered this rather late because I, I think that like uh, artists of color weren't properly... Uh, placed in the historical canon. And unfortunately, this colonial model has held her fr- from me. And so, so I discovered her uh, in an exhibition. I heard of her, but I, I actually discovered the power of her work in, in, in an exhibition, which I think happened in spite of the canon's insistence not to pay attention to these artists. So, I mean, that's, that obviously is such an important thing right now as we're talking because museums are, they have been anyway for a number of years, but because of George Floyd's murder and, and the Black Lives Matter movement, museums are having very, very strategically to address this question, aren't they? Uh, yes, and, and I've been part of a, a couple of uh, events with respect to the deaccessioning process that's been going on with some museums and uh, the, the big controversy around that, whether we should deaccession the, the major works of art in order to, to build up the, uh, the collection of minority. And I got in trouble because in social media I said, I said that if I were a significant artist and the museum wanted to deaccession me for the purpose of building their minority collection, I would, be, I would feel happy about that. But then I got you know, sort of feedbacks that, that said, you know, you cannot undermine hallmarks of art history, the, the building blocks of art history. You know, you have to preserve those objects. And, and you know, I had great respect for the, the historical narrative, how it played out, but the historical narrative was uh, floating on a sea of racism. And I don't think that because it's been written that it can't be reconsidered. Uh, so I said to one famous art critic who's, who told me that, well, you, you know, you, you can't undermine these great works of art. And, and I said that, uh, you know, well, I mean, I admit that these certain painters are geniuses or whatever you know, that term is, and these are great works. But all of those people, you know, were working in a field of reduced competition. So, so you know, had we had the diversity that we had today, back then, 
No, would they still be that great? I don't know, but I'm not interested in, uh, in rewriting history. I'm willing to embrace the history, but you can't presume that that history is infallible, infallibly produced, that there's the asterisk, that whoever it is, uh, uh, de Kooning or whoever it is, it's a great painter, made major contribution, but the asterisk is that women and minority artists were not in, uh, allowed to be part of the competitive field of art production and practice. That asterisk should be there. And, and so, uh, it, and, and it can be acknowledged, and so my idea of deaccessioning says that it's simply acknowledging the asterisk. You know, if you, if you take the uh, coining out of the museum, or, or, you get, or you let it have a, a private collector own it, it doesn't remove him from history. He's still de Kooning. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but you're making, you're doing some concrete thing and changing the landscape of art so that diversity become, become more normalized than it has had been in the past. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Well, the, the two, it's the same deal, right? Like uh, my disaffection with... Uh, Contemporary practice at the time I was a student wasn't because I was influenced to think that way by somebody. It just sort of happened. But, uh, but I can say that I found an affinity with certain people as a consequence of what I thought or discovered that I should be doing. So I wrote down in my notes, Steve Reich and Adrian Piper, uh, Hannah Darboven. Saul LeWitt is a huge figure I mean, he's, uh, but not living. And so I'm not sure he's the same kind of historical f figure as Velasquez. Had a real effect on me within my life, you know, because I knew him and so forth. So he's in this in-between place, you know, the historical or, but he's not living. You know, so where do I put him? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting because when I when I ask artists that question, the reason I asked you, I used the term contemporary this time round was because actually one of the curious things about the living artist question is that actually there are some artists who are who may have been dead for a generation or two mm. who are still very much alive in terms of their ideas and us in this in, in terms of their the way that their ideas sort of are deeply resonant today. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, and so Sal's a good example of that for, in terms of my own experiences. Yeah. Can you t tell me something about that moment for conceptual art and how much of it was a sort of discursive process or how much of it was lots of people involved in similar activities pursuing them in their own sort of individual ways? Well, my feeling about that is that there was an operating paradigm at the time that helped that group of first-generation conceptualists come together. So I think that they thought they were involved in a common project of conceptualism. And, and I think that they identified themselves as taking a, a unique uh, approach to critique uh, European art and, 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 uh, and those ideas, some of those ideas that, you know, that I also was invested in critiquing. So the connect, with, the, with them, there's the connection between artistic expression, subjectivity, and you know, reinforce this idea that that experience of subject, subjectivity is constitutively uh, the, the, the basis of a work of art. And so artists took different positions, but the conceptualists you know, proposed that you know, not that ex moment of expression is constitutive, but ideas are, the, the idea, the concept. 
is the fundamental and irreducible element in the production of a work of art. And I think they all shared that. I, I think, you know, they're, they're, there's this category of poetic conceptualists like Mario Mertz, uh, as compared to the, the, the early Bachner, which is, uh, seemed to be much more rigorous or kasuth, who were very much opposed to any kind of poetic assessment. So there's that difference, but I, but I think that they all really coalesce around these ideas. And you have to remember at the time, the art world wasn't that big. So it was not so difficult, you know, for an identity that a number of artists would share uh, at that time. I, I think that it's very difficult for that to exist today because the art world is huge. It's too huge, in fact, but, but, uh, and, and so much more diverse that uh, we're in this postmodern moment where I, I think that um, aside from a certain interest in, among artists in terms of advancing art as a certain a kind of political construct, uh, it's hard to, for what happened then during first-generation conceptualism to, to continue to happen today. It was also multidisciplinary that period as well, wasn't it? So there was conceptualism on the one hand, but then also you collaborated on this amazing work with Trisha Brown. So, so there was there was correspondence between disciplines as well as correspondence within a kind of new movement towards a, a new kind of work, right? Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, I was really excited by the idea that there's this interest in crossing disciplines, you know. Uh, by conceptualism, aside from what I was doing. It was, uh, there was something I knew what was going on in the world of art, and that idea of, uh, of collaboration and, and crossing disciplines and understanding that there is a kind of uh, language of art that it, it can be mutual to different types and different disciplines of art, that really ex- excited me. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me that, uh, as, as I was saying, that I cannot say, nevertheless, that the fact that that happened in conceptualism linked up in a linear way to this project that I had with Trisha Brown. I might say that I thought that pe- people would be receptive to the project because conceptualism created the space. But, but the project really happened because of... Uh, not that I was, was trying to tie dance and art so much together, but that I was interested in uh, the potential of the systematic language that I, that, I, that I used, but its potential to extend into other practices and other uh, forms. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connect. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. Among the guides on the app is one dedicated to the Black Cultural Archives, which collect, preserve and celebrate the histories of people of African and Caribbean descent in the UK. The guide on Bloomberg Connects is packed with fascinating material, as you'd expect from such a rich archive. Some of that relates to exhibitions like Breaking Barriers, which combines photography and oral history in telling the story of pioneering black British women. You can listen to the photographer Joy Gregory talk about her research for the photographs in the exhibition, looking at historic portraiture as a medium for the expression of power and possession, and employing similar poses in depicting her subjects. Her sitters include the civil rights campaigner Doreen Lawrence and the High Court judge Linda Dobbs, whose first-hand accounts you can also hear on the app. 
In a brilliant section called Archivist Secrets, Rhoda Boateng, the archive supervisor, shares some of her favourite items on video. And here too you can hear about pioneering women through Suzanne Scaife's collection on black women's organising efforts. In looking at Suzanne's papers, Rhoda talks powerfully about archives as a roadmap for other black women and black feminists trying to do this sort of work today. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at app.bloombergconnects.org slash a brushwith. Tell me about museums and galleries. Which museums or galleries do you visit the most? Well, here in LA, I, I most visit the Hammer, and it's not because they gave me a show. I, w- <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I always thought the Hammer was uh, a place that really made it a, a, a successful effort to connect international art with, you know, what was going on in L.A. And, 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 and it, whereas the, the, the other museums, which, and I think they're all very significant spaces like LACMA and MOCA, really featured themselves as global spaces. They, they weren't trying to, to deal with this... Uh, binary of the local and the global. And, uh, and so that particular aspect, I think, drew me to, let, to the Hammerby. Uh, I think it was responsible for me visiting them more often than I did the other museums. Although I have to say again, I love the other museums. I just love them. And then, but I can't like, also pass up uh, MoMA uh, because I uh, pretty much as much frequently visited MoMA even though, you know, because I traveled a lot uh, 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 in New York, and probably the most influential museum on me is, is probably the Met. It, 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 it uh, deepened my understanding of art, you know, in, in a more broad way than, you know, these uh, places that featured contemporary practice. Because, for instance, tantric art had a huge influence on you very early on, didn't it? It kind of almost showed you the way. Even if it didn't give you an exact language, it showed you a kind of mode. Would that be fair? Oh, yeah. I mean, what's interesting about that is that this issue of, uh, of ex- expanding one's influence, or one's sources globally as an artist, was something that's very important to today, but it didn't go on back when I was young. And so I, Tantra Arch, uh, you know, was one of the sources that, that told me that this idea of subjective expression was a myth. You know, uh, that you can make art without that concept at all. Uh, and uh, so tantric art was very important in that. And also in terms of coming up with a, a, a rule-based system, essentially, you know, t- t- I, I said that Tantra was a consequence of a, of a rigorous discipline, you know, of a yoga, so to speak. And so I knew that I couldn't, like, meditate and then make works of art from visions I saw in meditation. I mean, I guess I could. I Actually, I tried. And <laughs> it, 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 it produced, like, really terrible things. And so, so I said that the problem that I had there was that I can't, I'm not a tantric monk, I can't, Although the, the model said that there are other strategies of making outside of the European model, uh, the tantric model was, because I was nevertheless influenced by the West. You know, I grew up, you know, I'm part of the Western paradigm. And so I had to find something, some activity in the West 
that allowed me to feel comfortable about getting to something that I was seeing going on in Tantra art. And so, so in that way, Tantra, uh, you know, really sort of indirectly or maybe even directly connected me with the idea of, of, of using um, uh, numbers and systems in mathematics. Uh, one of the things that, that helped secure this was seeing these early tantric drawings of the universe. So I saw, I, I, I saw that, that as a, a kind of grid, a grid-based analysis of, 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 of an object in the world through certain particular language of forms that they use. I saw that. And so I said, well, how can I do that but from the standpoint of a Westerner? So I saw numbers as that same kind of uh, translator, a form that took me away from my, this idea of the subject and subjective expression. Is it too neat a link that those studies of the universe in tantric are linked to your own constellation-based works? So you, there was this series called Randomised Text, History of Stars, which had the Marquez-related element, and then there's these skybox works that you created. So is there a direct link, or is that just too neat of a, 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 a historical association? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I can't say I can remember a moment where I said, oh, yeah, you know, like those drawings. <laughs> it's just like, but I can't help to think that it reinforced the frame of mind that allowed me to see that later on in life when I made that series. Because uh, I, I, I began to look at the, the night sky as a system. And, uh, and I think that frame of mind was set in place early probably through Tantra. So, so I give it great credit, you know, to be able, to, as an artist, look at the, the, the night sky as a system in the way that scientists do. They, they look at the night sky as a system. Right? So, so I give Tantra that, that credit, really. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Well, it goes back to the Met, you know. That very definitely, um, the African collection at the Met. There was a sustained period in, in, in my life where I completely rethought who I was as a, not only a person, but as a, as a black person in America. You can call it another kind of awakening. <laughs> uh, when I uh, was, it was always taught that, that the continent of Africa had produced nothing to, to, in terms of the history of the world, that it was just, you know, Joseph Conrad's uh, dark continent, I, I don't beat myself up for buying into those ideas because that's all that was, I was exposed to. How am I to think otherwise? You know, so I don't beat myself up over it. Not at least not that much. But I was uh, under this impression that nothing happened there. And I, and, and let me put it this way also, in the books on African art, uh, African art was was taught ethnographically, not as art history. And uh, and so again, you know, like I. Guess I bought into that because uh, I saw the art in pictures of the art as being beautiful, but I didn't uh, attribute or think of that beauty in terms of art, of art. You know, some kind of experience of art. I got left into this notion of primitive naturalism, that is just something that nature produced, not really people, right? And and uh, but then I, I started reading some books that uh, books are the, the most ingenious invention in the history of, of anywhere in the universe. Uh, for me, all the major changes in my thinking happened because I read some idea that somebody 
Yeah, not, it was because I walked down the street and I said, wah, voila, ooh, look, I didn't. It's because some idea said, what? You know, where I got, I, it, it just dismantled the entire paradigm that I was operating from. And, and when I was studying this intense history of Africa, you know, it really bothered me. I said, how come I didn't know about this? And around the same time as when, you know, you know, I started getting out in the world and then, you know, going to New York and going to, uh, to the museum and then send, uh, for the, for, uh, seeing the, that Rockefeller collection for the first time, uh, it almost brings tears to my eyes right now. It was an amazing revelatory experience. Completely changed the way I thought of myself, my culture, the entire framework. And, and that's why I said the, that museum experience was, the, was really uh, the cultural experience. We call it a cultural experience that really totally changed me. And it also allowed me to understand more fully those interests that I had as an artist that I couldn't sort of answer in terms of how th those interests related to myself as a, as a black person in the world and as a black American. Did that understanding unpacked over time. You know, I think it took like 10 years to fully unpack, but it, it began the beginning of that unpacking. But let's talk about, about literature now. You talked about books as this amazing form of technology there. So t tell us, which writers or poets do you return to the most? So a huge influence and uh, in, uh, in, in who, who I reread is Edward Said. Uh, and then after Stokely Carmichael, who, who's, who I discovered his text. I remember listening to him speak back in the day. But then I discovered this, the, the writings and the speeches again, and I, that's some of the most profound political discourse that exists. And, and so even to the, to, the, to the point where I started using Stokely in my work itself, and, and then Foucault, who was my way of understanding deconstruction. I, I couldn't understand deconstruction until I read Foucault, and Foucault made it possible for me to understand Said. Franz Fanon... That was part of that experience, what I was saying about this discovery of the significance, the, you know, the, the change in my, the way I understood myself. Franz Fanon, it started with the wretched of the earth, but Franz Fanon was a singular and pivotal source. Uh, in terms of literature, I'm not, I don't read much literature, but, but I read, you know, those things that everybody says you better read, like, you know, Toni Morrison and... Chebe was uh, reading Chinua Chebe was amazing uh, when I discovered his uh, writing, and I immediately tried to introduce Chebe in, in, into my uh, art classes. It was cumbersome, but it, I was so thrilled by the, how he wrote that I started and I continued to read him. And is there anybody else? Uh, oh yeah, there, there's Marquez too. That people think that I'm so systematically oriented and anti-poetic, that how could I like Morrison and Marquez? When I think that it's because of my understanding of linguistics that I understand how, what genius writers they were. But it's really interesting because so many of the names that you've just mentioned are directly, as you say, directly in the work in different forms. You know, like, for instance, um, Fanon features in one of the um, uh, Manifesto's works, doesn't he? And, and, and you've, we, we talked about Marquez and him featuring in the Randomised Text series. And then, but there's also, that, like, so for instance, there's that body of work that you made directly in response to Georges Bataille. Yes, and you know, and I was intrigued by that. That, that, that in that case, you you kind of um, you deconstructed his text 
and reorganized it and i was i was sort of fascinated by the the way that you absorb text can you tell me a bit more about that and how they sort of formulate into works from from reading you know, I, I divide my history of my, my, of my practice into two parts. One part is what I call the grid work, and the other part is uh, sort of the language-based work. But what I wanted to do with texts was not pay attention to what was being communicated, but to unpack the structure that was present and how and possibly that structure informed how we read or how we, we, we arrived at meanings and... and and so I thought, for example, the Bataille piece, where I used a system to reorganize the normal uh, sort of linguistic framework of uh, the text to remove words or, and, and change the position of words, uh, making those decisions based on a system rather than any compositional interest that I might have. I came into thinking that if I did that, the poetics of the Bataille would be sustained. You know, the content might, but that's because as cultural readers, we know we're reading Bataille. But I thought that the, the poetics would sustain, and, and my response to that work is that I think that, that that happened, that we are all newly invented sentences using Bataille's words, but the, the syntax, all, all, all things was reinvented by the system, but it was still crazy Bataille. <laughs> You know, it was still this, this like wild, highly eroticized imaginative, imaginative experience. You know, and and uh, I, I, I thought that it's because of the way Bataille used language syntax that does that, and and it's and as by virtue of that, it sustains Bataille's expression to culture. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? Uh, well, at first, I have to admit something. <laughs> the thing that I listen to most is MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, my wife, my crew here at the studio, they all think I'm crazy. Why do, why do you want to torture yourself like that? <laughs> but I'm, a, I'm an MSNBC, CNN addict. I'm, I'm fully critical, you know, of how news is handled in the U.S., but I'm an addict. So that's on almost all the time. And, and with the craziness that's going on here right now in the U.S., you might wonder, how do I get any work done listening to that? <laughs> but, but in addition to that, I'm a stereophile. So, so I, I bought myself high-end stereo equipment, and I got it in the studio. So I'm pumping music at the same time while I work. And the music that I listen to is jazz and classical. So I listen to Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, and more contemporary people like Jason Moran. And, and uh, I lose it every time I hear Wayne Shorter's uh, contemporary group. I think Wayne is... And I, and I went to the same high school that Wayne Shorter uh, went to. But, uh, so I listen to that. But then uh, I, I also listen to... Um, uh, Beethoven and, and, and Bruckner. I listen to a lot of classical music, but I got this thing about Beethoven and this thing about Bruckner. Right. So that, that, a lot of people found that curious because you know how expansively romantic Bruckner is, and Beethoven a little less, but they wonder, you know, how can you sit around writing millions of numbers and, and find, like, and critique subjectivity 
and, and be so in, invested in Bruckner. <laughs> and uh, so I recently discovered an answer to that question uh, due to an essay an art writer made in one of my catalogs that uh, is really informative. Uh, because the other thing about uh, me is that I'm a, I'm a musician. I was a trained drummer, and I played professionally. And uh, over the years, uh, I stopped playing regularly, but I began playing again, picking it up, and actually in, including my knowledge of, his, uh, of music in my art itself, like the manifestos is... Uh, it's a good example. But also the, the, the drumming, uh, the, that I began to perform some of the music uh, that is generated by systems that, uh, that you would find in the Manifesto series. And one of the things that everybody always told me is that I was a, l- a loud drummer. You know, I was an explosive, they called it an explosive drummer. And so, so again, they said, well, how can you sit quietly writing millions of numbers and ones and then, then go and like lose your hearing playing, <laughs> playing drums? So this writer thought that the, the, thing, the, the, the connecting tissue was my interest in patterns. And I think that's true. I mean, I think that's why I'm interested in Steve Reich. I think how methodical and pattern Bruckner is, and nevertheless, is able to produced these extraordinarily broad, romantic gestures with these patterns. And then my interest in jazz, I think, you know, composition, uh, improvisation is wholly based upon pattern relationships. And I connect the patterns to my interest in visual patterns that I think is underscores my, my grid work, and which I think underscores my interest in, in syntax in terms of my language and in, in, uh, pieces. I wanted to ask about the colour in the grid works, because in your musical works, even despite the use of systems, still those notes trigger emotions. And you say that's as a sort of result of the cultural experiences of the listener. So obviously colours have certain resonances. So do you see them as similar to the musical notes in that sense? Yeah, I think it's it's quite similar to colour, because people ask me, how do I choose my colours? And I, and I say that, well, I don't, you know, I chose them based upon randomly selecting them from a larger palette. I've got like, uh, I don't know, 150, 200 color palette that we operate from that I developed over time. And from that, I choose the colors to use in a piece. And I don't choose them based upon designing the piece or trying to create a certain kind of design. I choose them based upon sustaining the ability to perceive difference as the colors are laid on top of each other. And also, I don't want to repeat what I did in the last piece. That's why I have so many, so many different colors, right? And, and, and so I tried to convince people that this is not a manifestation of me intending to try to produce an aesthetic effect. The effect is already there. It's built into the materials that I use. Let's talk about rituals. Do you have a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as a sort of essential ritual? There's a pattern. I mean, the pattern is simple. You know, like I work almost every day in the studio. I come at around 10, 10.30. I leave at 7 unless something is forcing me to come earlier or forcing me to stay later. I do that seven days of the week and only take it away from that when uh, I have to go out of town or some event that's 
that that's happened. Uh, those things take me out of out of the, uh, the the pattern. I learned quite early that this idea that you need to regularize your work hours, whether you work or not. You know, you, you, you need to if you have even if you have nothing to do, you sh- you still should show up to work, and and then stay there and then go home. And I think that's probably the only something that might be considered ritualistic that I can ascribe to what I do. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Oh, yeah, well, that's a tough one. It goes back to what I was saying about how I'm informed and influenced by the world. But I can pretty much say that uh, if somebody said you have the choice of any work, there are a bunch of contemporary works that I think are completely super and I would love. But if it was something that I would want that has already made its mark, uh, it would be the Matisse dancers. Yeah, so I saw that very young at, at, at MoMA. And uh, although Magritte, I, I think, was the first impactful experience, to, that Matisse, I used to go back to MoMA time after time and just to go look at it again. So, so, the, so if you know anybody who wants to give it to me, uh, please. <laughs> <laughs> I think MoMA wants to keep it, to be fair. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, what's art for? <laughs> I, was, I, I, really, I didn't mean to laugh at you. I, <laughs> I mean, if I could figure that question out. Holy smokes. The one thing I can't say about that is because I was uh, talking to a young artist the, the other day and realized from th- that I probably believe that the one thing about art that could be considered a universal articulation is that it has to have a responsibility. It has to participate in a direct responsibility to culture, to the world. That uh, it can't be its own sake. It has to have an investment into the world. And that, and that happened because I had this discussion with this young, young painter. And, uh, and, and so th- there was a binary going on in her painting uh, where she had figures that narrated a political concept and then she had purely expressive gestures that didn't seem to connect narratively to what she was doing as images, figures. And she was taught that, well, you know, you don't have to think about the expressive parts because that is not think aboutable. I just made up a word. You know, <laughs> you know, those aren't things that you can actually think about. And so you don't have to justify them, you know, that they are just part of the inexorable role of intuitive intuition in the way that you make work. And so I, I, I thought that, that using those two, employing the binary was fine. I didn't have any problem with that. But I thought that justifying the expressionist parts that way relieved you from any responsibilities with respect to what they might say or do in the world, its relationship to the world. And that ideology I'm I'm totally opposed to. So I realized that if there's anything that is irreducible, there's hardly anything in art that is irreducible. But if if anything, it's this responsibility to the world, I think is completely 
you know, that art is a cultural product. It is not some autonomous product of your, your subjectivity. It's a cultural product. It's produced by some notion of subjectivity, but it is nonetheless a cultural product. It has to be addressed as a cultural product. Charles, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, this is fun. Charles Gaines, Multiples of Nature, Trees and Faces, his first ever solo show in London, launches online first at houserworth.com and then will hopefully open as soon as the gallery itself does at Houser and Worth in London and continue until the 1st of May. Charles will also have a solo exhibition at Deer Beacon in New York, opening on the 12th of February. And in spring 2021, Charles presents new work at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, or SF MoMA. Do make sure you check details of all these shows before making a journey. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a look at the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalal. Huge thanks to Charles Gaines. We'll be back next week with the last episode of this series, A Brush With, the Iranian-American painter Tala Madani. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.